Acts 13, 1 to 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Christ City. My name is Brett. Uh, I have the joy of bringing the word to you this morning out of Acts chapter 13. Uh, I lead the church in South Vancouver, and so I know I haven't had the opportunity to meet all of you. Uh, It's my joy to be here. We have swapped pulpits today, so Fred is preaching for me in South Vancouver, and I'm here preaching for, uh, for him and for all of you, and it is my great joy to do so. Would you pray with me as we jump into the word? Uh, Father, we thank you that your word reveals who you are, that your word reveals how we are to live, and that your word reveals to us the depth of your love to us in Christ. And so my prayer this morning for all of us, Lord, is that we would sense by your spirit that we would understand and feel by your spirit the depth of that love that you do have for us, and that we would walk in light of that, that we would live lives that glorify you, and that we would enjoy you forever, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today marks the beginning of the season of Advent, as you heard Tanner say on the front end, and with that, it's the reminder that Christ is coming, that Christ has come, and that Christ is coming again. That's the season of Advent. That's the message of Advent. I I like to say that Advent is God's stubborn annual reminder that things in this world are not as they should be. That there's a gap between how things are and how things one day will be. And so this year we're going to be walking through the first chapter and a half of Matthew's gospel, but that's going to happen for the season of Advent the next three Sundays from now. And so today we're uh, in a little bit of a different feel. We're going to be looking at Uh, what you've already heard read today, Acts chapter 13, and then beyond, talking about the vision of Christ City Church and what we're calling the Sent and Sending campaign that we're launching today to prepare to plant Christ City Church East Vancouver in September of 2019. Um, Every year for the life of Christ City, which is now five years old, and and I know Christ City Kits is uh, nearly two years old, every year we have done a fundraising campaign during the season of Advent for a particular cause. And so we've done refugee fundraising, we've funded missionaries, we've done some stuff for global Bible teaching that we're looking to be a part of in Vietnam. Uh, We did that last year. Uh, We did a a campaign similar to this actually when we were planting Christ City Kits. And so you're the recipients of that and part of that. And uh, some of you will know very much uh, what that meant uh, to be a part of that season of time where we were looking toward what God would have us do in Kitsilano. Uh, But again, we are launching the campaign today. And so it's my joy to be here talking a little bit about the vision of Christ City Church, what that means for all of us across the city, and, uh, and hopefully uh, launching out of a place of strength as we look to plant in East Van in 2019. So let's talk about that. You okay? Some of you have no idea who I am. You're like, this guy, what is this guy? What is his deal? I love you. Pray for you. I love you. Even, even those of you that I haven't met yet, I've been praying for you. Not by name, because I don't know you, but I love you. You Okay. Please tell me I'm okay. Please tell me. Good. Thank you. I pander like that all the time in South Van, just so you know, like I just uh, to make me feel better. It's really a lot about that. That was a joke, but you don't know me again. So here we are. Acts chapter 13. <laughs> Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Let's look at this. Now, 
There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Acts 13 pairs very well with what we've been looking at over the past few months in our study of uh, the letter to the Galatians, because Acts 13, in this text that we're reading here, verses 1 to 3, is the beginning of the missionary journey where Paul and Barnabas head into the southern province of Galatia, and they start preaching the gospel there, planting churches there. The church in Antioch is all in on church planting and mission. The church in Antioch, we see that they're fasting and they're praying and they're laying hands on Paul and Barnabas and they're sending them out in the power of the Spirit to preach the gospel where the gospel had not yet been proclaimed. I want to show you a map. Um, As you can see on the map, Antioch is the sending point where they start their journey in the power of the Spirit and with the support of their sending church. They make their way to the island of Cyprus. They make their way across Cyprus, back onto the continent at Perga. From there, they travel to the Roman province of Galatia and into the city of Pisidian Antioch. There's two Antiochs in the story because there was a crazy nut job named Antiochus, and he liked to name cities after himself. So that's why you get two Antiochs. From there, he travels uh, from the, uh, into the Roman province of Galatia, and, and, and we continue on. You can see all of this in Acts chapter 13. Now, Paul gets up in the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath, and he preaches a sermon about the forgiveness of sins and the salvation that can be found in Jesus. And just like everywhere he goes, this is what happens. Some people freak out. Okay? Some people respond and believe. And the ones who freak out drive him away from Antioch. This is Iconium. Acts 13 and 14 say that they continue on. They go, they go to Iconium. They're driven out of Antioch. They go to Iconium. Same thing happens. Some respond to Jesus. Others make plans to assassinate them. So they move on to Lystra. In Lystra, they see a crippled man healed. They preach the gospel. And then there's some angry people from Antioch and from Iconium who catch up to Paul in Lystra. And they don't just plan to kill him. They actually try to stone him and leave him for dead. This is, this is what it means to be on mission. This is fantastic. Okay, Paul, apparently, hard guy to kill dusts himself off, gets up. The next day he goes on to Derby. This is what it says in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 23, about their journey through these cities in the southern part of Galatia. It says, when they preached the gospel to that city in Derby and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So we've got Derby, we've got Lystra, we've got Iconium, we've got Pisidian Antioch, all cities that are in modern-day Turkey. They evangelized in these cities, they made disciples in these cities. Paul had his assassination plotted uh, only for the first time. It was going to happen again and again. In these cities, Paul was stoned, left for dead in one of these cities. And then they went back to all of these cities. They established churches in all of these cities. And they appointed elders over the churches in all of these cities. And then they went home to Antioch. And they went home to their church to give a report. Here's what it says at the end of Acts chapter 14. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And then they 
<coughs> and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. I want you to notice something. When the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas, they sent them on this journey into the southern part of the Roman province of Galatia. They sent them there that they might preach the gospel where the gospel had not yet been preached, that they might establish churches, gospel outposts, where there were no gospel outposts quite yet. And when they did that, do you see who was involved? Look at Acts 13 again, 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Christ City, who was involved? It's not an idea that they had. <laughs> this, is, this is a God-ordained plan that was put together. Do you see who else was involved? It, it was the whole church. Two were sent, but the rest did the sending, and everybody was involved. Two were sent, the rest did the sending, and everybody was involved. As the Spirit orchestrates plans in our midst, consider what it means to be sent, and consider what it means to do the sending. See, when they came home, they came home to share the testimony with the people who had sent them out. They came and they told of God's faithfulness. They came and told of the response of the people who had believed and placed their faith in Jesus. Verse 27 of Acts 14 says, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It's the whole congregation that's involved in this. Some are sent, some do the sending, but everyone is involved in the missional work of establishing new gospel preaching congregations. Have you ever thought about this? Every church was planted. Like, I know that there's ones that have existed for longer than our lifetime, and there's church historic buildings that we see in our city, and there's these places, and you sort of just think they've always been there. And it's very easy to just sort of consider that every church has just always been there. It's been there my whole life. There's churches in the southern part of Turkey that were planted by Paul and Barnabas a couple thousand years ago. In that region, they preached the gospel, churches were established. Now those churches have come and gone and a whole bunch of things have happened, but have you ever conceived of the reality that every single church has been planted? Paul and Barnabas were not radical loners who ventured off into the great unknown. They were missionary church planters who had the backing of their church at home. They were sent. They had been sent by those who did the sending and it was all done in a partnership of the gospel whereby the fame and deeds of God could be made known in their day. And when we plant churches in Vancouver, we're doing it so that the fame and, God, fame and deeds of God could be known in our day, that more people might have life-changing encounters with Jesus. This is what God is calling us to as a people. And then you go, what compels someone like Paul and Barnabas what compels 2,000 years of church history watching missionaries go all over the place? Some of them laying their lives down, others of them suffering in different ways. What compels a person to do that? In fact, not only what compels them to do that, what compels the sending church to send them out? 
Because typically the people you're sending, there's a great cost when you send them. It would be far more comfortable to just hang on to them. What motivated Paul and Barnabas to venture off into these hostile territories where they had not yet heard of Christ? What keeps a person motivated when they're planning and plotting and angling toward your assassination? Why do you go back to those cities? Do you ever think that in Acts 13? They tried to kill him in Lystra, then he goes to Derby, and then what does he do? He turns around and goes back to Lystra. I'd be like, I'd be like no, thank you. Thank you very much. The last time I was there, they tried to kill me. Well, but Paul's motivated in a different way. I think he's motivated for the task that he was called to. What keeps a person going? It's Jesus. 2,000 years of mission in the church, a global movement of people for 2,000 years, it's Jesus. That's what the motivation is. These people have had real encounters with the real resurrected Jesus. They've been compelled by God's love to preach the good news of the gospel anywhere and everywhere that the Holy Spirit may send them. See, when you come to Jesus, something happens. Those of you who are followers of Jesus, you know this. Something happens. It turns your whole upside-down life right side up. When you come to Jesus, something happens. It turns you from an enemy of God to a friend of God. When you come to Jesus, you turn from a rebel to a worshiper. There's a change. There is a then and a now. And if we see Jesus for who he truly is, man, we will worship. And not just in song as we gather together on Sundays at Fifth Avenue Cinemas, as we live our whole lives. Every act of our life, 24-7, becomes an issue of worship. We're worshipers. And if we see God for who he really is, then we will see him seated on the throne and we will see that there is a cosmic dimension to the reality of who he is. And we will see, we will see with new eyes that we are invited into something magnificent. This week as I've I've thought about this and we talked about it as a preaching team, what a perfect picture of seeing who God is in Revelation 4 and 5. The heavenly throne room vision that the Spirit brings Apostle John into. And he says, have a look at this. This is what he says, Revelation 4, 1. After this I looked, John says, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And I'll show you what must take place after this. This has been the meditation of my heart this week. That we would rightly orient ourselves to seeing Jesus for who he is, for seeing God in the fullness of his glory for who he is. I want to read this over to you. Over, I want to read Revelation 4 verses 2 to 11 over you, and it's not going to come up on the screen, and, and if you have a Bible, that's great. You can follow along, but I, I, don't, I don't actually encourage you not to, because I want you to hear it. I want it to captivate your imagination for a moment, and I want you to see if you can see what John saw. Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 to 11. At once, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. 
And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. In the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day after night, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory to Honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In a world before computer-generated images, CGI graphics in movies and video games, the scene that is painted here, the picture of what is seen, the, the portrayal of John to us of his heavenly vision, it's something otherworldly. It's awe-inspiring. And when we see this in the throne room, we see this throne room vision, if we see it clearly, what it does is it anchors our worship in the reality of God as he reveals himself to us. Not as we maybe wrongly conceive of him, but it anchors us in the reality of who he is as revealed to us in Scripture. Let me show you the response of those who see God and the Lamb as they truly are. There's a progression here. And so in chapter 4, the four living creatures cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And when they cry out in praise, seeing God for who he is, as he is, seated on the throne in the midst of the light and the lightning and the thunder, the 24 elders fall down and they praise him. And this is what they say. They say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And then in chapter 5, which we haven't read for you yet, we see this idea built out further when the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall on their faces before God and they sing a new song to the Lamb. This is what they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then when that happens, the heavenly host all gather in, and it says that the four living creatures and the 24 elders are joined by myriads and myriads of angels, 10,000 by 10,000 and 1,000 by 1,000, singing with one voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And then when that happens, it says every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea join in the chorus, and this is what all of creation sings, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It's a progressive explosion of worship to the one who is seen as worthy. The four and the 24 and the myriads and the thousands and all of creation, they see him for who he is and they see him as he is and they worship. Look at verses five, or chapter five, verses nine to 10. It says they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Do you see that it says that Jesus has made us, the Lamb who was slain has made us a kingdom and priests to our God? the church of the worthy lamb who is seen here in Revelation 4 and 5 is a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and it's a people who are called to reign with him in his glory as a kingdom of priests. And part of that priestly role that every single follower of Jesus is called to, part of that priestly role is to mediate God's goodness to those around us who don't yet know him. There's a priestly work that we do. There's something going on. It's nothing less than the consequential effect of the gospel of seeing Jesus for who he truly is. If you meet Jesus, the missionary efforts of the church over the last 2,000 years, they just make a lot of sense, and you want more people to get in on this. You ask yourself the question, why would people lay down their lives to stay at home and serve their city? It's the same reason that people would live their lives and lay their lives down to go overseas and to serve that particular city, region, or country. It's the same reason. When you come to Jesus, something happens and your motivations are just flipped upside down. You want more people to get in on it. That's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Kingdom of priests, mediating the reality of God to the world around us. So when you meet Jesus, you realize it's not your comfort that's at the center of your life. It's actually not you who's at the center of your life anymore. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. That's what the Apostle Paul said later on when he wrote back to those same churches in Galatia, right? It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. When we're captivated by the glory of God, when we see him for who he is, high and lifted up, exalted in the heavenly throne room, when we see that, we worship him with all of our life. And here's one of the things he calls us to. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. The 11 disciples are meeting Jesus, the resurrected king. He has died, he has been buried, he has risen. And he appears to them and says that the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Could you imagine? Just stop there for a second. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Do you think that there's room for your doubts in this church? I mean, this is the risen king standing before them, and some doubted. It's not what I'm preaching about today. There's room for your doubt here. 
Verse 18 says, Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here it is, Christ City. This is what I'm hoping to drive at. That we would see that part of our role in the kingdom of God is to serve as a Revelation 5 worshiping church who are active in Matthew 28 missional discipleship. That we as a group, that we as a congregation, that we as a church across the city would see ourselves as a Revelation 5 worshiping church acknowledging who he is, but that we'd also serve as a Matthew 28 missional discipleship church, taking who we see he is, mediating that through our own lives to the rest of the city around us. And here's how we believe we're called to walk that out specifically as a local church. Specifically as a community on mission in Vancouver, this is what Christ City Church is all about. Here's the statement that we use when we talk about the vision of our church. Vision, the vision of Christ City is to establish a network of neighborhood churches that are large enough to meet the unique demands of urban ministry and small enough to maintain community. Let me read it again. To establish a network of neighborhood churches that are large enough to meet the unique demands of urban ministry and small enough to maintain community. This is what we think we're called to. See, the mission of the church is the same in every country, on every continent, on this entire planet. The mission is the same. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's the mission of the church. So you know when, when we get really cute with mission phrases, like mission statements? You probably have a personal mission statement in your life. You know what you're all about. Maybe you work in a corporation that you've crafted some mission statements for. That's great. The church doesn't really get to craft the mission statement. We get to probably say it in unique ways, but the church of Jesus Christ has one mission statement. It's Matthew 28 and the other places where we have the Great Commission, and that's what we're called to do. So that's the same on every continent in every church. Universal. It's a universal mission of the church. The vision of the church, though, is specific. This is what we feel the Spirit has specifically called us to. I, I was with pastors in Vietnam uh, last month. They're church planting pastors in Vietnam, and they have a particular vision that God has called them to, but they've got the same mission as we have. They have a particular vision of what their life is supposed to be and what their church is supposed to be about. So there's a uniqueness to the vision, but there's a universality to the mission. So uniquely, Christ City Church believes that we're called to establish a network of neighborhood churches that are large enough to do urban ministry, yet small enough to maintain community. You go, how big is that? I don't know. Don't have a number for you. How small is that? I don't know. Not 100% sure. But we're trying to work it out. This is what we believe God has called us to as a church. We think that more people in Vancouver need to meet Jesus. That's a great place to say amen. We, we just think that there's a, a great need for more people in Vancouver to meet Jesus. Of the 650,000 people in our city, a very generous estimate would say that about 30,000 people are followers of Jesus, which means that there are about 620,000 people facing eternal separation from him. That's in Vancouver proper. Just let that settle in for a moment. 
These are the faces of our family and our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors. Okay, I, I feel that. I want people to see Jesus as he is. I want them to know that he is the lamb who was slain to bring us into a relationship with God. I want them to see that. And so, and I, I want to understand who we are as the church and the missional impulse that we have to share the gospel with the people around us, to live lives that glorify God. And you say, well, why a network of neighborhood churches? Why a network of churches grounded in the life and community of their own neighborhood, on mission in their own neighborhood, serving one another for the good of the city right there in that neighborhood? Why is this the, the, the call that we have? I want to show you a picture. This is a hydrangea flower. I don't know anything about gardening, but I got two illustrations for you today out of the botanical world. Here's what I did learn about this. These are hydrangea flowers. Uh, they are the same plants with the same seeds, and they produce different color flowers. And here's why. It's the soil that they're planted in that determines the color of the flower. So if you take a, a batch of hydrangea seeds from the same plant, same genetic markers in them, and you plant them in pots with soil of different pH levels, it will yield different color flowers. Same seeds, same genetic makeup, same DNA, if you could say it that way. Somebody biologically will tell me that's not right or something. I'm probably, I have no idea. But if they've got the same DNA and they're the same seeds and they're all hydrangeas and they look different, we've got to note that it's the soil that actually makes them look different. See, when you plant a hydrangea, you are always going to get a hydrangea right? Nod with me. Yes, Brett. This is, I, I, I think my, my kids at school have learned something about planting things, right? They're, they're little. Yes, if you plant a hydrangea seed, you're going to get a hydrangea flower. You're not going to get a thistle. You're not going to get an apple tree. You're not going to get a bunch of roses. You know what to expect when you plant that seed. I think the church of Jesus is like this. I've, I've had the privilege and the honor of worshiping with churches all over the world. Churches all over Southeast Asia, churches in Australia, in the UK, in Northern Africa, in Egypt. There's a church in Palm Springs we went to that I'm pretty sure was a retirement community. Here's the thing. They all did the same thing. They all have the same mission. They looked very different from one another. If I could say it this way, they were all churches, but they had some of them had blue flowers and some of them had pink flowers and some of them had white flowers and some of them had whatever color flowers, whatever that is in the middle. <laughs> I heard a magenta. I believe it's magenta. Thank you very much. Same biological marker, different expression. Same seed, same DNA. Looks a little bit different based upon the soil it's planted in. So an underground church in rural China should not look the same or have the same strategic manner in which they do ministry as a, a church in uh, urban Stockholm, Sweden. That would be ludicrous to think that that would work in two different contexts like that. They're both going to worship. They're both going to celebrate communion. They're both going to baptize new believers. They're both going to enjoy the experience of the communal acts of the church, the one another's of the church. They're going to display the fruit of the Spirit. They're going to have a familial love and devotion among the members. There's going to be repentance from sin, teaching from Scripture, all the things that make a church a church, but this is what you need to see. They're going to look very different in a way that they do that. 
Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6, that there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here's the thing. You don't get to mess with the nature and character of God, which means you don't get to really mess with the nature and character of the church, except when you plant it in different soil, you should assume that it will look a little different. There's only one God. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. There's only one spirit. The same spirit who has filled you has filled me and our friends around the world. All that's the same, but the expression of what it looks like to do ministry will be different. Now, now if you think about that, on a small scale, that's what we have in Vancouver. Vancouver is a city of 23 neighborhoods plus UBC. Well, we include UBC. We love people there too. 23 neighborhoods plus UBC, which is not rightly part of the city. It's okay, I'll explain it to you later. A bunch of those neighborhoods you can kind of group together as having very strong similarities in terms of demographic and life practice. city is filled with a diverse people from all over the planet, and different neighborhoods have a different feel to them. The same gospel planted in different soil might produce a different color flower, but it ain't going to be a different flower. A different soil same gospel, different expression of the church. Permit me one more metaphor. You say, this is why we think we're supposed to plant a network of neighborhood churches, and that's all well and good, but why a network of neighborhood churches? Why not just individual neighborhood churches? That will make a lot of sense to just plant individual neighborhood churches. First of all, we're for that. But here's the unique call of Christ City, to plant a network of neighborhood churches. Let, let, me, look, uh, let me show you this picture of an aspen grove. This is a picture of the world's largest living organism. It's an aspen grove in Utah that has 47,000 trees connected to the same ancient root system. So when they run the kinds of tests that you, know, you biologists like to run, they have found that all of these trees spring up from the ground as part of one original parent tree. So they share the identical genetic makeup. They're all interconnected, which means that of the 106 acres that this aspen grove covers, when one part of it is in drought, it can persevere because the well-watered parts will help. When a wildfire rips through this forest, the part that's burnt down can quickly regenerate because it's nourished by an ancient broad root source of places where it wasn't burnt down. The aspen grove is nicknamed Pando, which is Latin for I spread. That's our hope for Christ City. We're a network of neighborhood churches who share a common foundation and a whole bunch of citywide resources that help us to have the strength of a group that's larger than us, but also allows us to properly contextualize the gospel to neighborhoods that we're planting in. Helps us to worship in proximity to where we live. It helps us to embed ourselves in a geographical area where you actually might bump into some people. The root system is implied in the nature of the network itself. It allows for university, uh, uh, for university, for unity and diversity. The network itself allows for unity, but also diversity. Planting is in the DNA of Christ City. From day one, we've talked about this. 
And sentence sending is in the DNA of Jesus' church, as we see from Acts chapter 13, Matthew 28, and all over the rest of the Bible. Uh, we even tell people, if you become a member of Christ City, in our, in our online member content that you can watch before you have an interview with the elders, when you join Christ City, you're joining a church-planting church. Like, we don't stop and vote about whether we should plant a church or not. Uh, it's the operative assumption that by God's grace, we will continue to do this. We don't stop and consider it because our identity as the sent people of God compels us to this end. Our real encounter with the risen Jesus compels us. The invitation into this cosmic worship of the one who is seated on the throne, it compels us. The radical nature of the gospel that transforms us from sinners to saints and from being those who are lost to finding our participation in his kingdom as we're a kingdom of priests, it compels us. Understanding our role in the kingdom of God as Revelation 5 worshipers and Matthew 28 sent people, that compels us. William Temple, he said the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not yet its members. Let me translate that. It it ain't about us. It's not about us. So as a citywide church, what we would do is we would ask you to pray. Uh, Pray about how you might be involved in helping to plant Christ City Church East Vancouver under the leadership of Jake LaFaith. Some of you will be sent. The rest of us will do the sending. But we will all be involved. We can't do it without you. Can you imagine the void in church history and actually the void in the history of missions if the church in Antioch had said, we think the Holy Spirit's calling us to send Paul and Barnabas out on mission, but boy, we really like having them here. Really like Paul's preaching. I wish he could just stay here with us. Now Barnabas, he just seems to be a guru. What if, what if we don't send him? What if we just hang on to him? We'll, we'll build a group around him here. What if they lived with that kind of self-centeredness to say that it was really about Antioch? What if they said, there's more places in Antioch to reach before we send these guys globally? <laughs> what would it look like? You know, two years ago, we ran a similar campaign to what we're talking about when we planted Christ City Kids. Uh, And here you are, almost two years in. Here you are. Um, If you want more info about what it means to be part of a church planting church, uh, there's going to be vision nights in January, February, March, and then as we move into pre-launch gatherings for East Van after Easter, um, there's three things I would ask today of you. Three things I would ask. Number one, would you consider praying as we seek to plant Christ City Church East Vancouver. Would you join us in prayer? And not a, like not right now where you pray right now, because I know how this works. I know you, we're all good Christian people. Hey, would you pray about this? Yep, Lord, I pray about this right now. It's fantastic. Amen. Okay, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. What I'm asking is, will you write it down somewhere where you remember it? Like, would you pray about it occasionally? Maybe even daily. Not just as it comes to mind, which is how I end up doing things if I don't write them down. Would you pray about this? It was the local church instructed and led by the Holy Spirit who sent them out in power. That's what we want to do. The only way we do that is for praying. 
Secondly, would you consider if God's calling you to uproot yourself and plant yourself into the Hastings Sunrise neighborhood? Don't worry, I asked Fred if I could say that, and he said yes. Would you consider joining Jake and Maisie and the rest of their team as they plant in Hastings Sunrise? And third, would you join us in giving toward our goal of $100,000 in this pre-launch campaign during the season of Advent so that we can have everything we need to set up? You do church in a remote location, in a, in a secondary location. You understand what it takes. You need all the gear to roll it all in, a truck to drive it there, and a whole bunch of other things that go on. You understand this. Would you join in this with us? Would you join in this that we might effectively reach those who live in that neighborhood who don't yet know him? Some are sent, some do the sending, but everybody's involved. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.